to the Bards FM podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to a conversation with Sergeant First Class Retired Corey Terry, Special Forces. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots. And today is Monday. May 29th in the year 2023. It's Memorial Day. It's a day that I can't say have a happy Memorial Day. I think it's more appropriate that we say blessed is the day that we remember those that made the ultimate sacrifice, such as Memorial Day. should be a day of contemplation and reflection for all of those, not only who have served, but who have paid the ultimate price for their nation. And especially now, it's something we need to be reflecting as well on all of those who have fallen that were innocent, killed by our own government at the hands of a vaccination. And that's a true statement. Unfortunately, we're in a very dark time when our government is willfully and wantingly part of an operation to destroy humanity. And you'll notice in all of the nonsense that's going on right now with Kevin McCarthy and the budget deal, nobody's talking about stopping the vax. Nobody's talking about sealing the border. No one's talking about changing the data collection that's making us increasingly a police state. These are the things that matter, and there's the things that we fight for, and there's the things that we need to stand for on this day to remember what our founding fathers gave us, a country built on the Declaration of Independence in which all of our rights came to us from God, our Creator. And below that and what follows from that is our Constitution and our Bill of Rights, all of which cascade in one big umbrella of moral law, which is what we should be following, but which we are not, hijacked by an illegal occupation of what is known as the U.S. Corporation, or the Corporation of the United States of America, which has tried to pilfer and pillage every single thing that we have. This is a country now that is under a despotic rule run by corporations that has taken the Constitution and literally used it for, t- for toilet paper a sad and sickening time, which has brainwashed many who really think that we need to be changing the Constitution, that somehow it's a living document, not one of which has ever lived under a nation that is run under the Constitution. That's what we're fighting for, to restore this nation to the vision of our founding fathers. And so on this day, I can't think of a greater respect for all of that than to bring on somebody who represents to me some of the greatest war fighters ever developed. They are a branch of the United States Army. They are known as the Green Berets, otherwise known as Special Forces. They have a legacy that takes us back to John F. Kennedy. They truly are the men that understand these words, de oppresso liber, which means to free the oppressed. And this is what they live for and live by. It's a motto. It's an ethic that they have within them. They are the quiet professionals. They don't talk often. And when they do come out, they are humble. They are amazing soldiers, amazing warriors. And I've had the pleasure and great honor in my life to have worked with many and to have even been asked to help assist improving their operations and their training. I can tell you that's a very humbling place to be. These men who wear the Green Beret represent the best of America. 
And that doesn't take away from anybody in service. So I don't want this to sound biased in that way. But nonetheless, the Green Berets are the penultimate of the type of warfare that we should be doing the best. It's the type of warfare that takes us back to our colonial period. It's unconventional. It's It's UW, unconventional warfare. It's what makes them so amazing. Twelve men being able to be deployed within a nation to completely tear a country down and rebuild it through the guerrillas that they raise up, the armies that have the inspiration and have the desire to have freedom. This isn't about politics. And the problem is on this Memorial Day, many people are reflecting and struggling with the idea of what to do about a time in which we're reflecting on the real meaning of war, struggling with how we serve our soldiers. Let me solve that for you. A soldier gives his life not to a politician. His soldier gives his life and his duty to something much greater, a value, a principle. Truly right out of John 15, 13 to 14. Greater love has no one than this, that a person will lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. These are men that will put their life on the line for the man on their right and the man on their left. They are, a person that, they are people that will put their life on the line for you. It has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with the motivation and the insanity of our politicians or the deceit of our corporations and our current form of government. These are people that believe in the Constitution. These are people that believe in the Declaration of Independence. They believe in what is there. And so in a time right now when many people are asking what to do about our military, where are we? Have some faith because there are great men and women within the ranks and there are amazing veterans that have left and served their time. But the time for them to be called up isn't yet. The one thing that a special forces operator understands very clearly is it's only one by, through, and with the people. And it's taking time for the American people to wake up to the nature of this threat that we face. But those hours are quickly slipping by and the minutes on the clock are ticking down because we're very aware of the dangers in which we face. So, Patriots, tonight we are going to hear from an amazing person I've just recently met. I have a lot of respect for him. And this is Special Forces Sergeant First Class Retired Corey Terry. And he has served in 10th Group Special Forces. He has served 15 years in the Special Forces ranks. He was a 18 Delta, which means he was a medic. And he has, toured, he has been around the world. He has been in Afghanistan. I believe he was in Iraq. I, I'm trying to remember quickly, but I know he was extensively in Afghanistan, many of the same places I was. So this is a, a real moment here to reflect on the greatness of our soldiers, the greatness of what they represent. They represent the best of all of us in so many ways, a heart that's willing to die for a purpose and cause in this nation. If we could all have that principle, and like Patton reminded us, it isn't our duty to die for our nation, it's our duty to kill the other poor bastard and make him die for theirs. That's a true statement. But at the same time, it's the willingness to give yourself selflessly to a greater cause than yourself. And this is truly where we are right now, a time to start reflecting on the greatness of what we created, not the despicable trash heap that's sitting up there in D.C. trying to run us into the ground. Kevin McCarthy is a sellout piece of junk that is willing to do anything he can to maintain his power. That type of person represents everybody in D.C. That's the despicable nature of American politics and the body politic that is steering this country into the eternal pits of hell. What will keep it from falling there is we, the people, that understand the greater ethic and greater purpose of what our mission is here, to reflect and learn from the people like Sergeant First Class retired Corey Terry, 
that truly understands the greater meaning of what it is in our purpose in life and has served it and walked that path. So these interviews for me are about awakening a greater warrior spirit in all of us, a warrior spirit that anchors itself in faith, in our love in God, our love in country, our love in family, and to understand truly that there are such things in this world worth dying for, putting our life on the line for. That's what these interviews are here for today. So Patriots, before we begin, one thing for sure is our air quality in our home is necessary. So one of our great sponsors that we brought on here is EnviroCleanse. And they are a product that is U.S. made. They use them in the Navy warships to help cleanse the air inside these ships and filter it through. They have a HEPA filter and they have a patent pending earth mineral technology filter. They will filter out everything from cold viruses to bacteria to dander to the pollutants that cause allergen reactions in your lung to even the dust particles and mold that float in the house. I've been using this product for some time. In fact, to put it through a real test, I've taken one of their filtration units and I have run it steadily now for almost 10 days. It has done amazing work. It, it truly makes a difference in your environment. So if you head on over to EK, ekpure.com, ekpure.com, use your promo code BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, you'll get 10% off and free shipping. It's well worth the money. I think it's an amazing investment. It's not something that I would have considered until I tried it. And then once I've gone through it and realized how the difference it makes in the home, especially in the studio where I spend probably too much time in front of a computer. But nonetheless, it is a great product that I would highly encourage you to explore and investigate. They are a great company, American-made, great quality. And it is, it, 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 in fact, it's running right now in the background, which means it has almost no noise because it's not being picked up by the mic. So a wonderful product. It will, they would, depending on the cycle you put it on, it can circulate your air or filter your air up to three times an hour in a room. So it's a great product. So again, ekpure.com, use your promo code BARDS for 10% off. And before we get on, we have a couple other things to touch on, one of which is Bards Fest. And I've, there is a new promo up. If you haven't seen it, it's been pinned in the family room on Telegram. It's up on the website, but I'll play the second half of it, which is me talking. The first half of it is visuals that were done by Duncan, a.k.a. the Kilted Christian. He did a great job of creating an impact promo for the very beginning of this. But here's the details of Bards Fest, which I think you'll find very inspiring. I'm very blessed and honored to be able to announce Bards Fest here at the Church of Glad Tidings in Yuba City. This year's festival is going to be unlike what we've done in the past. Our first event was in August of 2021 in St. Louis with a primary focus on medical tyranny and repentance for a nation. But so much has changed since then. Right now we are facing an enemy that's unprecedented, moving in the shadows and lurking striking at our children, striking at the elderly, and trying to turn everything in this world upside down. It is a war of good versus evil, and this is truly the darkest of dark that we're facing right now. God is calling his warriors, and Barsfest is focused on lighting those campfires, bringing those warriors together to be inspired, to be re-energized, and do powerful things in the name of the Holy Spirit. Just as Joshua brought his armies back to the camp after circling the city of Jericho each night to be revitalized as the fires brought them together with the stories and prayer and the motivation to move forward, such is the sense of Bards Fest this year. This is an event for families, this is an event for people with an amazing lineup of speakers. And those speakers include myself, Scott Kesterson, Pastor Dave Bryant, Lou Binninger, 
Pastor Brad Cummings, the producer for The Shack, Pastor Anthony Thomas, a warrior in Christ that started here at the Church of Glad Tidings, Mark and Tina Wesson, prophetic and intercessor prayer team from Alabama, Myron and Dottie Lizer, the former vice president and second lady for the Navajo Nation, Shemaine Nugent, wife of Ted Nugent and warrior in Christ herself, Coy Griffin, who is the founder of Cowboys for Trump and was also a victim of J6 for praying on the mall. Dr. Frank, who's been an absolute on the ground warrior teaching people how to take back their vote and hold people accountable for the crimes of voter fraud. Lieutenant Colonel retired Pete Chambers Special Forces, who has been leading the fight against the vaccine in Department of Defense, as well as being on the border firsthand, facing the cartels and the immigration invasion and retired Sergeant Major Joe Vega, former Delta operator who was on the ground in Somalia and who today continues to lead the fight to raise up our soldiers and train them into the ethics of war and being a fierce patriot in this hour. And the culmination of the event here at the Church of Glad Tidings will be a symbolic recreation of the breaking of 300 pots of light in the symbolic rising up of Gideon's army as God did in our stories of biblical times. This is the hour. On Saturday morning, then we will close out everything with an assembly in Marysville where we will come together to pray, to walk the streets, and literally cast out the demons and bring in the Holy Spirit. Bards Fest is about inspiring the warrior class. Bards Fest is about raising up God's army, no matter how small or how large, because we're reminded very clearly that in these times, God calls those with the heart of the warrior to stand mightily against the evil that is moving in the shadows and moving freely on the battlefield. We are in a critical hour for our nation and in our faith. And so Bard's Fest is that call. It's the answering the call of Father God in a critical hour to be inspired, to be empowered, to be emboldened by the Holy Spirit, to take our authorities into this world and to literally confront the demonic and set us free. Join us. It'll be three days of some of the best time you've spent in fellowship, in prayer, and celebrating the power of the Holy Spirit as we take back our nation. All right, Patriots, you'll find that at bardsfest.com. Bardsfest.com, get your tickets there. It's donation only. Recommended donations, $100 for the three days you choose. But nonetheless, want to see you there. It will be live stream, so you don't have to worry about that as well. And we'll have an ability to donate as you wish as we move through this. So this is a big time, big event. I really do feel that there's an important call for all of us to start coming together. This is an all-star and world-class cast, uh, assembly of speakers. I truly mean that. We're greatly honored to have that many people commit to this. And the nature of what we're talking about, it's truly amazing. So I'd encourage you to be there. At least follow the live stream and support this as much as you can. All right, Patriots. Again, this is Sergeant First Class Retired Corey Terry, Special Forces. It's a great honor to have him on today. And so please welcome this American hero. Well, Patriots, for Memorial Day, I am really honored today to have retired Special Forces Sergeant First Class Corey Terry. Now, as you know, my discussions on so many of these shows about Special Forces, they are really the cream of the cream. Uh, there's an ethic, there's an ethos. They're, they're even the only unit in the entire military that has a prayer dedicated to them. And they're really a different way of seeing warfare. They also have their origins with John F. Kennedy. 
there's just so much about that rich history. And every one of the guys that I've ever worked with just is exemplar in this quiet professional role that they walk, the commitment that they make to nation and and an understanding of warfare in a completely different dimension that most people in the regular army just don't grasp. So with great honor, I, today I welcome Corey Terry. Corey, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing good, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor to, to speak with you. Uh, I follow, I follow the uh, Bards of War podcast uh, daily now. Uh, it's an awesome show. And then thanks. Thanks for uh, speaking with me. Absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit about your background. I know you said you said to me before we started, you had about 25 years in service, but 15 of that was in Special Forces. So let's get a little context about that. And and, and you were in 18 Delta as well, which is a medic. Sure. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, 18 Delta is the uh, Special Forces uh, medical sergeant. Um, but yeah, I was uh, originally, so before that, I was a, a 19 Delta Cav, Cav Scout. You know, I, was, I grew up... Um, uh, playing guns with the neighbor kids, you know, wearing camouflage clothes, playing with GI Joes. I knew from a very young age that the military is what I wanted to do. And then right out of high school, <clears throat> right out of high school, I went to the recruiters. Actually, I did the delayed entry program. So before I got out of high school and enlisted and went straight in, didn't know anything uh, about the military. It was, it's interesting because I'm sure you've heard stories about people watching videos at the recruiters. And so in a unsuspecting, you know, candidate, they show you a cool video and they showed me the one for the, the 19 Delta Calvary scout. And I thought, wow, that looks great. And then <laughs> come to find out I'm in the back of a armored vehicle, a Bradley for, for my careers in 19 Delta, but did that for a couple of years, got my Arnold discharge, went into the national guard in Nebraska. I'm originally from Lincoln, Nebraska, born and raised there. Um, and that was actually a better experience uh, than coming off my first, two plus years in active duty um it was just a got you know good old god-fearing patriots that uh, on the weekends wanted to get together and and serve to whatever capacity so that was actually a good good experience but uh, 9-11 happened and uh you know i was compelled to come back in and i knew at that point what the military was about what the different jobs were and i wanted to do special forces or at least give it a try so a week after 9-11 I walked right to the recruiter's office and I said, I want to be special forces. Um, and he's like, whoa, 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 you know, it's not that easy. Um, you know, it's a long, it's a long journey uh, and it's arduous and it's hard. In fact, the recruiter, I think it was an E6 said, yeah, I tried that. You know, I, I, I blew up my knee and uh, never made it. And he's like, uh, you sure you want to do this? I'm like, yep. So then the rest of kind of history came back in active service. Uh, spent the next 15 years, many deployments. Uh, I was a 10th grouper. Spent uh, all my career either at 10th Special Forces Group or at SWIC, the, the training group at Fort Bragg, um, and retired again. Uh, night, it was in December 2019. And then wouldn't trade it for anything. That's pretty awesome. So where did you deploy? The only place I ever deployed before Special Forces um, was Iraq, 2003 for the invasion. It's funny because I was in fourth infantry division at fort hood texas and i was in uh 110 cav and i think it's funny because i was a 19 delta became an 18 delta i was in 110 cav with the 110 sfg um but yeah for two it was 2002 i went to selection special forces assession and so, uh, assessment and selection made that got back it was december had a broken metatarsal 
had a partial ruptured MCL in my knee. Uh, I was on profile and I got called in on the weekend and I said, Hey, I'm on profile. And they said, doesn't matter. And we had our orders to go to Iraq. So um, we deployed to Iraq 2003, I think it was March. I can't remember specific date. And I was there till October where they lifted the stop movement uh, where I was able to redeploy and then PCS to brag airborne en route and do the, the Q course. And then other, so NSF, I did about two months in Iraq. I was in the theater hospital doing a medical proficiency training rotation. Man, that was, that was, that was a eye opener. I was in Balad at the theater, the theater hospital where we received all the trauma patients from all over. And it was just 12 hours a day, uh, just shock trauma. You know, we would have, you know, 12 to 15 uh, trauma patients come in per day. And then on top of that, all the follow-up surgeries from the day before. So I, I spent, you know, 12 hours a day in, in, in the ED and the OR just working on trauma. That was, that was an experience. Um, but I also did uh, seven uh, trips to Afghanistan. Uh, was in Kabul, uh, Kapisa a couple times, and Tagab Valley. And then I was in Herat. I was in Kunar. Um, uh, touched, you know, I, I didn't. I don't think I actually worked a whole deployment in any other province. But I've been to a lot of the other, like the training bases, uh, Black Horse, and was down in Camp Brown and in Kandahar for a, a few days. Um, I did a, a deployment through. Ended up going to Africa, went to Egypt, uh, Niger. Niger was an interesting one. Um, Morocco, training the, uh, the the Royal Commandos there. And I spent six months also in Romania in the in the OAR, Operation Atlantic Resolve. And then I think that's pretty much sums it up. Let's talk a little bit about the Special Forces mission, because this is a very unique mission within actually within any army globally. I don't think we, there's anybody else that has a true force like special forces. So, you know, on the books, you know, the, you know, special forces are commonly referred to as the green berets. Um, you know, their doctrinal missions uh, is, is primarily, I mean, mainly focused on unconventional warfare, but along those within, you know, it's a broad spectrum. You know, that's what I loved about special forces was because you could find yourself doing anything from direct action to humanitarian assistance and treating kids and, and delivering babies sometimes. But, uh, but yeah, unconventional warfare, foreign internal defense, that's working with the host nation partners and training them to, you know, to improve their capability for their nation, uh, for their force, direct action, right? That's door kicker stuff, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, special reconnaissance, um, information operations, uh, counter proliferation uh, of weapons of mass destruction. I really didn't see a lot of that. Um, and then security force assistance. Um, but again, the focus of special forces is the unconventional warfare. And what basically what that is, is, is uh, you are working with indigenous forces, right? So in Afghanistan, we were either partnered with, um, the Afghan National Police, the Afghan local police. Um, my last trip in 2014 in Kunar was with the, the PRC, the Provincial um, Response Company, which 
was kind of like the, the quick reaction force for all the forces in the province. Um, but what we did is we mentored them, we trained them, we, we helped them recruit, advise them, you know, help them. You know, our, our job, you know, in, in UW is to pretty much train ourselves out of, a, out of a job, right? So we want our partner forces to do everything independently and organic, right? We want them to be able to form within their own ranks, create their own command, uh, a competent command and training schedule, right? So they can, and then of course, help them arm, arm themselves, procure weapon systems, train them on the weapon system, train their trainers to train their guys on the weapon systems uh, and advise them in operations uh, so that they, they can start to do things on their own, right? We're, we're, our job is to be a, a, for, a force multiplier. Um, but within UW, one of the key, one of the most important things is that interpersonal skill, that cultural understanding, be able to, you know, that whole hearts and minds thing. That's, that's, that's truly, you know, what it is, you know, be able to, you know, you're eating, you're training, you're sleeping next to, um, you know, you're learning their language. That's, that's actually the language. And I know, you know, is a big rapport builder, right? When somebody has enough interest in your culture and your language and that they're, that they want to learn, you know, that's like, Hey, you're invested in me. You, you show interest in me and, and my culture. That's like a huge, that's like really huge. You know, so we'd sit down after missions or training and, and drink some chai and maybe eat some chapli kebab and, you know, and they would go over whether it was, you know, different deployments, different languages in Afghanistan. It was either Pashto or Darley primarily. Um, but you would learn that base working knowledge of that language. And that was the biggest rapport builder. Um, but you gain that trust. And if you don't have the trust of the indigenous people, um, you are not going to be successful. Uh, you are not going to be able to conduct any type of missions because where you will operate in small teams, 12 man ODAs. And a lot of times we're out there by ourselves. Sometimes no, we don't even get air. We don't get that, um, that air cover that a lot of conventional forces do at least not as readily or as easy i mean it did seem to pan out um, but sometimes we didn't sometimes we didn't get air. but you you put your lives in the hands of your partner force they oh they outnumber you for sure right and and you're familiar with green on blue right where your partner forces turns against you right an afghan police shoots an american uh, that's referred to as green on blue and if you don't have that rapport, you don't have that trust, and you don't build these relationships, you're going to see that green on blue. They have to be invested, right? They, they have to have that trust that you know that you care about them, you care about their families. Um, so it's it's a complex um, mission set. Um, the guys, the guys we work with, you know, and every group is different too. I'm sure you saw that. Uh, every group has a different kind of personality a little bit of group cultures you know some are more uh i guess dedicated to that direct action and then some other groups i felt like 10th group was really good at the unconventional warfare in all my deployments i never saw a green and blue incident um because our guys they loved us and we we truly took care of them we cared for them um but yeah sorry if i'm Getting off, getting off on the rabbit trail. There's a lot of information to it. Uh
No, I think this is good. I mean, it just kind of gives a lay down because the one thing I think it's hard for people to understand and or often to appreciate is how 12 men as a team, which is your ODA, um, can have such a massive impact and literally take down an entire nation. And that's the function of special forces. And I think a lot of people miss is it's literally this by, with, through model. And I think you're hitting on that, but try to expand a bit of that because that gets into the specialties of each of the guys and then their secondary specialties. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a couple of really good examples uh, from my experience, um, the by, with, and through, and, and, and also not only understanding their culture and their language, truly generally caring for them right as a team member including them uh and as much as that we can i remember and we would take care of their families i remember you know there's this one time we were we were handing off some humanitarian supplies you know the rice and beans the charcoal stoves and blankets and that and that type of stuff and they brought this tractor and this is in this was in kunar 2014 and they had this trailer that we were going to load up and they were coming to the gates and we were going to off, you know, offload all this stuff. And then when they showed up, there was a little bit of excitement and they were carrying this boy, this 12 year old boy, you know, in their arms. And we're like, Oh man, what happened? And the, the kid was riding on the wheel well of the tractor. They hit a big bump because the roads are perfect. Right. In Afghanistan, it's this big pothole. The kid bounced off landed under the big tire of the tractor and broke his femur. And so we were like, oh, wow. So let's, let's, let's check him out, do some vital signs, do an uh, assessment. And like, sure enough, it's angulated, it's broke. And uh, put him on a litter. The base I was on had, was sensitive in nature and they didn't allow our port partner forces on the base. Um, but of course, we're going to try to do everything. We had a forward surgical uh, team on the base with great capability and, and if you're familiar with the medical rules of engagement, um, usually if it's coalition induced, right, or coal, or our partner force, that um, uh, we could take care of them medically. We could use our resources, our medical resources uh, to help. But if it's just a, a civilian that had an accident, generally the medical rules of engagement is like, no, we cannot expend our medical resources uh, on the civilian, but, uh, you know, and I know that, you know, part of the strategic mission for us, um, was, was that acceptance by local population. So we, of course, and we have a lot of, uh, capability as an 18 Delta, but, you know, this was beyond my capability. I, I reached out to the forward surgical team and they're like, no, sorry, med, med rule negative, med rule negative. We can't take this kid. And then of course we had one of the, um, the, the clandestine uh, uh, clinics on the base. And we reached out to their team and they're like, yeah, we'll come down, we'll check it out. Uh, and so they come down and they're like, shoot, we gotta, we gotta help this kid. Let's get him up to the clinic. So we took him on base, got him up to the clinic. Um, and by that time, since the kid was on the clinic and uh, the two clinics had a kind of a close relationship, the FST, the, the, orthopedic surgeon walked down saw the kid as soon as he saw the kid he's like i gotta help him he's like bring him up uh, and they ended up doing an ex external fixation uh for his femur but um the kid the kid healed he he did well and i remember the father he was in tears 
because uh, we we went out of our way to help him. And I remember he came back and he handed he he handed me this raw uncut diamond. I, I have no idea how many carrots it was. It was huge. Um, and I I smiled and I was like, actually, I was kind of in shock. I was like, wow, you give me this big diamond, but uh, I refused it. I was like, you need to keep that for when you really need it. Um, but you know, it's that caring um, and and providing for our partner forces that allows us to do that unconventional warfare. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the most important thing. You know, if you don't do that, you will not be successful and you're not going to uh, be a force multiplier. It'll be an opposite effect. What are the specialties on the team? So the specialties, all right. So when, you know, on the 12 man ODA, um, of course the team leader is the 18 alpha, right? He's the officer. And generally, uh, although there's good officers, um, there's really good officers out there. Generally, the 18 Alpha is the least experienced on the team um, as far as uh, Special Forces experience is concerned, right? They come as a captain to a ODA, um, and but they're ultimately responsible for what does and doesn't happen. And then next in line, you have the assistant team leader who is a warrant officer. Um, usually... You know, that's a mixed bag. It used to be the most, uh, I guess, experienced because it's all crusty NCOs that wanted to stay on a team. So they'd go to warrant, um, the warrant course. And then after the warrant is third in command, which is the team sergeant. Now, in my experience, the team sergeant or the operations sergeant was the most experienced uh, on the team. Um, he deployed the most, uh, had had a lot of, many years of training and experience on ODA forward and um, was usually the, I guess, the lead of the team that, that was the most respected. The captain always generally, if he was a good officer, took the advice of the team sergeant because um, of his experience and knowledge. Um, and team sergeants generally are good because uh, the, the SF command, they don't, they entrust a lot to the, the operations aren't the teams aren't. So they pick good ones. Um, and then you get down to the intelligence aren't, which is an 18 Fox, right? So that's, that's one guy. That's the only, um, it's, it's non-redundant, right? So you have one slot for the intelligence aren't, and then you get down to the next four MOSs, which are redundant, right? So we, we do redundancy or the old adage two is one, one is none, but we can also do split team operations. So your 18 Bravo is the weapon specialist. Your 18 Charlie is your engineer, uh, you know, building and, and demolition. Uh, your 18 Delta is the medic specialist. 18 Echo is your communication specialist. But you know, we all cross train, right? So the medics know how to use all the weapon systems. The medics know how to do, you know, satellite communications without the 18 echoes the the communication special with them right because you're sometimes doing stuff in two-man teams and then demolitions uh the the all the other mos's are learned to a pretty good proficiency uh you know tactical combat casualty care they can do all the basic life-saving skills plus we we take them out in training venues and teach them the, the trauma surgical skills right in the in the event that maybe they have to assist or do it on their own so everybody's got to be proficient in everybody else's job. Um, and it works out great. And, and, but you know, the key, the key aspect, it doesn't matter how much 
knowledge, training, you know, and how competent you are if you don't have the character, if you do not have the right character. Um, I would take when I was when I was a team sergeant, I would take somebody green right out of the Q course if he had solid character before I would take a guy that's been in 16 years, crusty old NCO has been deployed multiple times, got all the badges, all the whistles. Um, but he had defunct character any day, any day I would take a, you know, I always, you know, you can train, you know, of course you have your base set of skills out of the Q course, but you can train them up. Let's talk about UW unconventional warfare. I think this is a really important aspect and it's, it's a type of conflict and type of warfare and a type of operation is very foreign to where people understand in a sense, right? They give guys going through training and being on teams um, the tools to be essentially problem solvers. I mean, that sounds simple, but it's 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 not really. When I mean, you have to have highly capable, highly intelligent, you know, men of moral character um, to be placed in these complex environments and figure out a problem, um, you know, and, it's, and, a lot, and generally a lot of times we would go out whatever theater we were in, you know, Afghanistan, and we would get a general mission, right? Obviously, we would have to, to you know, do all the, the planning and preparation and brief the commander on what we wanted to do off of his general mission statement and get the thumbs up. But we would generally go deploy. We'd get some general mission of like, you know, um, you know, like interdict and prevent suicide bombers uh infiltrating kabul through the tagab valley with with material and men you know and then we had to figure that out right figure out who our enemy was right so that's why i loved uh, loved about uh being an sf because you get this general mission you get approval you go out there you're kind of on your own uh you, you it's on you to partner with the host nation forces or the indigenous people and you have to develop it you have to figure out, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So you got to figure it out. And a lot of it, you know, we get a lot of building those relationships enables you to figure it out, but the, the, the full spectrum, right? So we go in there, partner, figure out where the enemy is, what the enemy is, what he looks like, you know, you're doing all that intelligence and how then we can plan, how are we going to affect them? How are we going to affect the enemy? How are we going to shut down their supply routes? How are we going to, mitigate you know their attacks on the the main supply route right when they're planning ieds um and you come up with creative solutions but it, that's not just it right there's other um and again the human terrain is a key and and even the taliban you know they know that they're not dumb they try to do their own uw in a sense explain that last piece though human terrain that's a good point so you know everybody knows what terrain is, you know, you got mountainous terrain, you got the deserts, you got the, the jungle, the forest. Well, the human terrain is basically just as it is, you know, the humans, right? Like you have to figure out, the, you know, the population within the area of, uh, of operations that you are, you got to figure out a, what, what their needs are, right? Well, you get, well, of course you got to know the culture. You got to know something about their language or a way to communicate, but you got to figure out, you know, are these people oppressed? Are these people poor? What are their needs? Um, how can we provide them? You know, it's mutual benefit, right? So we help them, they help us. And 
and within that, right? So within that human terrain, you find an avenue to, you know, get to solve the problem. You know, you you make, you know, make friends with your your partner force. You're you're doing good things. You're helping the communities build roads, wells, opening up clinics, doing uh, medical civic action programs. You buy that trust. That trust gets you to talk with key leaders, right? These elders that are families have been there and tribal tribes that have been there for generations. They come in and they can, if they, you know, accept you and your help and they believe that you are there to help them, well, then you give them an out, right? So if you have uh, uh, an oppressive Taliban, right, coming from Pakistan, and again, it's everywhere I go in the world, generally, humans are the same, right? They want Obviously, they got you got to have security, but they want it. You know, men just want to get a good job, work hard, generate money, provide, get married, have kids, provide for their families, and just be left alone. The, you know, cult, culture there's cultural differences. I got it, but generally, people just want to have their families and their job, and be left alone, have that security, right? So in Afghanistan. The town, you know, who's who's the biggest threat? If I'm if I'm a villager in Afghanistan, in a mountainous region, kind of austere, right, away from beaten path, you know, the security bubble of Afghan forces or the security bubble bubble of American forces is not there, right? Who's the bigger threat? Well, the Taliban that lives around my village is the biggest threat. I might not care about the Taliban. I just want to be left alone. But if they come into my village, threaten my life, my livelihood, and my family's lives. Well, who's going to offer me protection if I don't get enough protection and security within my own tribe, my own village? Well, of course, I'm going to, you know, survival, right? That survival mode. I'm going to capitulate so that the Taliban come in. They say, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to kill you and your family if you don't let us store our weapons in your backyard. If you don't let us walk across your land to go set up an IED on, you know, on the uh, ISAF or U.S. forces. So I'm going to let them do it. Maybe they bring me some money. Maybe they, you know, provide some food. You know, maybe they provide security. You know, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like the mafia, right? Um, they, they'll, they'll pay, they'll pay you and protect you, but um, they'll, they'll kill you if you, if you cross them. So I don't necessarily fault, you know, because I remember in Kunar, I talked to, we had a good relationship with this, this, this tribe, the same tribe that Jim Gant uh, was embedded with. And Jim Gant was a genius in UW. I have a lot of respect for him. And I remember the village, I forget the name of the village, that was adjacent to the tribe that he was embedded with was was Taliban control, right? So they actually facilitated and conducted operations that killed coalition and, and probably U.S., uh, service members but again they're in that situation well what jim gant did was found a way with the village stability operations or one tribe at a time uh, the afghan local police is, is enable tribes and communities and villages to secure themselves they would help facilitate training getting the weapons and then that would grow right they would grow in a positive way and then the villages would kind of interlock and they would you know, kind of pull QRF for each other. Well, once this 
this Taliban village was shown the way and they found a way that they could provide their own security, connect with the local, the other adjacent villages. Well, then they turned against the Taliban. They turned over. Right. And I remember talking to this, this uh, former sub, you know, this Taliban sub commander. And, you know, he, he's like, yeah, I used to be Taliban. He's like, what are you going to do? You know, who's the biggest threat? But then you, and talking about moving in that human terrain, right? So if you can provide those basic needs of the people and they see you're there to help them, well, then they're going to help you, right? Because nobody wants to live under oppression, right? The, the special forces motto is the oppressor libera, which is uh, loosely translated to free the oppressed. And people want to be left alone. They don't want to be oppressed. And if you can provide that or help them provide that for themselves, well, then you you pretty much want, you know, you can't, you know, it's it's a that's why it's more complex. And so, again, that human terrain, figuring that out, how do you do everything I just mentioned, opens up so many doors. And there's other aspects to unconventional warfare, right? There's information operations, right? And, and I'm sure you're quite familiar, information operations, intelligence uh, gathering that there's, there's just like in the news, there's, there's information, there's misinformation, there's disinformation, and all of those are important, right? In conducting unconventional warfare. It's like you want, even if you have, uh, sources of, in, of information, you know, are bad, they're, they're maligned, they're, they're, they're feeding you purposely bad information. Well, that's still valuable and that's still useful because you have other solid, you know, conduits of information that you know are good and you can compare them, right? And you can kind of figure out what's going on in your area of operation. So everything's valuable and you just got to be good at, at figuring out what's good information, what's bad information, what's misinformation. And then you can shape on your own, right? With information operations. I remember we used to have uh, a radio station and we had uh, one of our interpreters used to run. Well, we would rotate the interpreters. They would run the radio station. And it's all about, it's just like you see on the news, right? How do you spin things, right? How do you tell the truth? And how do you tell the truth in a believable manner? Um, so if there was a mission conducted, it was a race between your enemy. Who could push their side of information out, right? So if there was, uh, let's say there was a, a gunfight, right? There was a tick, troops in contact. And there was a couple innocent bystanders that were killed. Well, our enemies would try to spin it as like, oh, the Americans are here. They're killing your women. They're killing your children. We're here to protect you. And then, of course, we would see it on the drone footage. And you would see we killed 20 Taliban that were obviously in front or behind innocent civilians using them as shields because they could use that as propaganda. And of course, American, the American forces, I think of all NATO forces that I've worked with, go to great lengths to preserve life, to prevent innocent loss of life, to the point where we lose our own service members. We go to such great lengths and, and you know, different levels of, of sign-off before a bomb is dropped. You know, sometimes it's at our own detriment where we lose lives uh, or the enemy gets away and kills more Americans down the road because we are, you know, so bent on 
not causing collateral damage, not killing innocent. Let's talk about moral character. You mentioned it, and I think it's something that's really worthy of note here, because if there's some things that define for me, where having worked with special forces, moral character has been one of the many things that defines the uniqueness and professionalism of the Green Beret. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's the most important in, in anything you do in, in life. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're if you're doing dangerous line of work, you know, it has a different weight to it. But I think in any aspect of life, uh, character is is the most important, you know, and, and that includes not only uh, your profession, especially in the military, or if you're serving on a um, you know, if you're a first responder, if you're a police, if you're a firefighter, uh, EMT, you know, you got to be trusted and you got to have the, the right character, but also into your, you know, your personal relationship with your friends, your family, um, you know, even, even if, uh, in your faith and your walk with God, you know, you got to have that character. You can't, you know, it's, it's kind of like integrity is always the big character trait that everybody uh, brings up right? Do what you say, right? Just like the Green Beret song. Um, you know, do, you know, if you say something, you do it. You don't say, hey, you don't say just, just to, to be nice. You say something because you mean it. And then if you, you know, if you're, if you, you don't make promises unless you know you can follow through, right? So if I'm going to make somebody feel better and say, Hey, if you need help this weekend, you know, just give me a call when I know I'm not going to be available. I don't say that, you know, if somebody's asking for help. I'm honest. Like, yeah, you know what? I, I would, any other time I would, I would help you out. I'm sorry. I know you really need it, but being honest, being genuine, right. Being generally, especially, um, important in, it's especially important in leadership is right. Having the right character. What do the words quiet professional mean to you? For me, you know, you cannot be a true leader or, a, you know, a, a warrior without humility, right? Being humble, you know, because we do this, uh, you know, for a higher calling, a higher purpose than ourselves, right? So when we, when we sign on the dotted line, raise our hand, swear an oath, um, we don't do it for ourselves, Right. Then, and that gets down to what's your motivation. And that's what I always ask guys when they get on the team is like, what's your motivation for doing this? Why are you here? Um, but the quiet professional is, you know, because of this is, um, you know, books are written about special operations, movies and and everything, you know, it can get and, and And also, you know, like, I think that can go the opposite direction, too. Right. You can do too much or too little. I think it's good to record history. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about doing stuff out of pride, right? Getting accolades, you know, throwing it out there. Hey, I did this, I did that, you know, just so you get people to fawn over you. Um, the quiet professional does things for the right reasons. They have the appropriate motivation. They don't do it for the accolades. They don't do it uh, for the prestige. They don't do it for the medals. They do it because they care about their country. You know, they, they care about their brothers uh, to their left and to their right. 
and you know they care about their families they that's why they're there that's why they're doing it i mean i hate war you know it's it's interesting uh 25 years and in, in multiple deployments um you know people are like think think that i enjoy war and that that uh that common question is like how many people did you kill like okay i got it like i i get it people don't understand and so i have patience for that but you know that's you know they don't understand why we do it they don't understand and and that uh, quiet professional i think what that does you know that that statement quiet professional just alludes to the kind of character that special forces needs and wants um you know so they have they have the right men and women to get the job done you hit on something there really big it's like right at the end of the film black hawk down the character Hoot, I think, I think he's built on Hoot Wharton in part from the team. Um, he says that, get home, people just don't get it, and I'm not going to say a damn thing. There's a lot to that, but there's more to that as well, is that one of the things that's very honorable in the Green Berets is there is a desire not to be recognized, but rather to just walk that humble path and do what needs to be done and live a quiet life. That's been my experience, and, and and I would say that from what you're describing, that seems to be pretty much on par. How does that tie in then with warrior ethos? Because this is a great deal more, and you said it, than just going out and shooting it up, kicking indoors, shooting people in the face. This has your your mission is much greater than that, from a from a small team, and literally, not only affecting national security, but raising up guerrilla armies to give them freedom if they chose so choose to take it. If you had a perfect assessment and selection program, well, then, then the rest would take care of itself, right? If you could weed out those that were lacking in those uh, warrior ethos, the, the soft core attributes, right? The integrity, the courage, the perseverance, the personal responsibility, the professionalism, the adaptability, uh, team player capability, right? All those soft core attributes. If you could have a perfect selection process, then you wouldn't have to worry about it. You know, but, you know, when I going through two years of special forces training, it was for me, it was a, a selection process for the full two years. Um, you know, you get kicked out for integrity violation anywhere along the line, right? Disrespect. If you are not respectful of the cadre, if you were, if you were caught, you know, copying notes, cheating or something, you know, there was, there's integrity violations. Um, but we know that as humans, we are not perfect. And, and therefore we cannot create perfect systems to, to get the, the type of individuals that we need uh, for these dangerous and austere missions. But the one thing I, you know, I always thought it's interesting because when I went to special forces selection, you're, you're surrounded by, uh, you know, guys that are physically fit, very intelligent. A lot of them have college degrees. I didn't have one going through. And I actually, when I first showed up, you know, because you, re you remove all your badges, your tabs and everything, and you get a number, right? A little uh, engineer tape with a number on it. Um, but you can see, because, you know, back in those days, the wood, the, the woodland pattern camouflage, the BDUs, you could, you know, they starched and ironed them. So you could see what patches they had. And I remember looking around, seeing like everybody had, you know, Ranger tabs and airborne and aerosol and pathfinder. You could see that ironed into the uniform. 
and that they were NC, you know, you know, E6s, E5s, you know, captains. And it was actually a little bit intimidating when I first showed up. I was like, wow, I don't have any of these schools. And, but, it, you know, it's was, it was like, well, that I don't care. You know, that I'm going to just do my best and push through it. But go through and you see, um, you see people start quitting along the way. They, they quit on themselves or get frustrated or, you know, they get, you know, peered really bad because they're just, you know, terrible people and they don't get along with well with others. Um, and they start dropping off, right? Every, every day you keep, you know, as, as people would leave the selection, if we started with like the 400 and you'd get whittled down to like, you know, 140, 130, you know, every, every couple of days they would shift your bunks and they would close down the, the bunk houses. Right. And so you'd have a new neighbor like every day. But as you watch these people leave, you, you start to, to think and realize that it's not about what you have on your shirt. It's not about what, you know, what you, what schools you've been to, or what qualifications you, you had or what rank you are that has nothing to do with what they're assessing for. Right. That was, that was, you know, that was my uh, realization just coming, you know, being new, being a baby SF guy, right. Is like, you can't judge a book by its cover. And then you would see the guys like I had a really good friend. He, he retired out of fifth, fifth special forces group. Um, and I remember we kept getting closer. He wasn't far away from me anyways, but he stayed in it. And, you know, we kind of, you know, we don't have a lot of time to make friends, but he's the guy I would talk to when we had a minute. Um, and so I don't, I don't know if I say his last name, but Dennis, Dennis uh, was, was a really solid dude. And he'd always come over and he's like, well, I guess we're a bunk closer together. And again, we were like five or six away. We ended up being next to each other. He's like, you quitting today? And I'm like, nope, not me neither. Okay. So we would drive on. Um, but he, he was very uh, like-minded as me. And we would notice individuals, right? Everybody's tired. Everybody's hungry. Everybody's sore. They're beat up. You know, that's, that's the whole purpose and beat you down and see, you know, cause everybody can fake the funk. Right. But when you get hungry, when you get tired and, and you're beat up and you're hurt, you know, I had a, my, you know, second mother parcel, the foot bone, right. <clears throat> was, was, I had a stress fracture and I could feel it clicking every time I put my foot down, I was marching. There's the bone ends rubbing together and everybody's hurt. But what they want to do is break you down like that. So then you can reveal your true character, right? They beat you down to, to where you're miserable and it's easy to see the character in its truest form when you're under pressure. Um, and, that's, and that's what they do. And you can see guys. So when we get back to the hooch and we'd have a few minutes to, you know, to go wash up and get ready for the next event, right? What were guys doing? Were they just taking care of themselves or were they taking care of others? And we had lived in this uh, barracks shed, metal hut, whatever it was. And who was sweeping up the floor? Who was taking out the garbage? And, we, and I call these the intangibles, right? Very difficult to assess these intangibles. It's the things that somebody does when they're cold, hungry, tired, beat, but they're still looking out after their teammates and still being, you know, the, the old adage of doing the right thing when nobody's looking. Um, and now if they could perfect 
how to assess for those intangibles, I think they'd have some a better product, but it's very difficult to do. But the closest thing they have is the pure evals, right? When you, you know, I, I don't remember how many pure evals we did, but you you say, you know, this this individual, he's always eating first. He's he's only doing the right thing when the cadre are not around. Um, and, and, and I think that works to a certain extent, but it doesn't work perfect. And it's only for three weeks. Maybe it's 21 days of selection. Maybe it's 20. You know, they always try to change it up a little bit to keep you guessing. But you know that it's uh, only a few weeks of suck, right? So, you know, some people, they can they can fake it. They can fake it for that much. But the warrior ethos, right? The the character, the reason, you know, because if I showed up and I'm I'm a stud, right? I I've got the best PT scores. Uh, I've already had a bachelor's. I'm very intelligent, got high scores on the SATs. And I just come there and crush all the individual events. But I have, you know, the wrong character. Um, the warrior, so you know, that all those soft core attributes, you got to possess those, but to your core and the, the motivation, right? Going back to what I was going to say, the motivation, why am I here? If I'm here just for the prestige, because I know, you know, all these, these great names and, and, you know, the green beret just sounds good. I want to mount it on my, my mantle. I want to hang a green beret sticker. And that's the other thing, you know, SF dudes, they don't put all these SF stickers. You might see a little, uh, the flash in the bottom left, that's just so we can have that near recognition of each other's and, and know, okay, that's an SF dude. He's from fifth group, but they don't put all these stickers all over their cars. <laughs> they don't wear, you know, all these teeth. Um, yeah. You know, versus the guy versus the guy that truly is there to serve a higher calling to serve his country and, and be there for his teammates, be, be a true team member right? Where, you know, you sacrifice for your team. You know, it's, um, what's the, what's the movie, uh, Red Platoon? It was about the battle of Camdash. I don't think I, I don't think I know it right off the top. I don't, I don't know it off the top, but the, you know, in the end they do some interviews. Some of the actors were actually there. They were service members. There were soldiers that were there at the battle and they used them in the film. And in the end, you're looking at the credits, and he says something, he said, the, the one guy, he said something that really hits home. You know, he says, um, you know, that the gates of heaven and the gates of hell reside in the same place. You know, while, while you're in combat, you can see the worst of humanity with all the, all the carnage and, and, you, and you see hell. But at the same time, you can see the courage and selfless sacrifice of your teammates. You see the best of humanity which would equate to the gates of heaven, you know? So, you know, that's why you're there. It's not for the prestige or the book deals or the movie deals. You're, you're truly there on a selfless nature, selfless nature. You said something here a minute ago. It's pretty interesting. I think this is a good place to kind of wrap things down. But it was the point that in selection, as they wear you down, your true character comes out and... I think any of us that have worked in that extreme environments, not only of war, but especially in the special operations realm, have experienced that. Right now as a nation, we're going through a very interesting period where people are being worn down, and it's by design. 
And I've said many times in this, at this period that we're in, we're in a selection. It's a threshing floor of sorts. And that we're really starting to see the true nature of people. What's your thoughts on that? And then just kind of your words towards this era, this time as a, as a veteran, as on this day in particular, towards people now that are in this war. A lot of them have never walked in the, in the fields of war, but they're living a war that's unprecedented in scope and dimension. What are your words? I just kind of spoke on that note uh, earlier. Um, and it's funny you say selection. And we talk about this, you know, because uh, one of the greatest things of going through the last three years plus uh, is the networks and the people that we find ourselves next to, uh, whether it's digitally or actually next to. But, you know, we go through these trials and this form of oppression and censorship and you can feel isolated. You know, the beginning of the onset of this, you're just trying to get your bearing. Like, uh, I, you know, I, I followed RFK Jr. Uh, before COVID. So I kind of knew the, the background and the corruption within the pharmaceutical company. So when this whole thing kicked off, I was skeptical. I was like, no way, this is, this is all planned. And my wife was on board because, you know, I give a lot of credit to my wife. She's awesome. Um, she's the one that, that fed me the information in the beginning that got me to look. But in the beginning, it's very easy to feel isolated. You know, that's, you know, it was so, it was so genius that, that they coordinated around the world, right? Well-coordinated, controlled media, same message, right? Lockstep. So it's very believable to people, face value. And, and so those of us that were skeptical and, and saw the inconsistency or, or knew that there was corruption, you know, within these pharmaceutical companies, which obviously translated to government. You know, the, you don't get a lot of company, right? Because everybody you work with is towing the line and they're doing what they're told. You, it was really surreal. And I know everybody listening probably and yourself can remember when this all kicked off and the stores started doing the, the stickers on the floor or they would have one-way aisles, right? You'd have to follow the arrows through the store to, to do your shopping. And it, and it was just felt like the movie 1984 or some surreal sci-fi movie. And you're just like, I cannot believe this. You're like, I cannot believe this. And then the mask thing, you know, initially it was, you know, it was, it was hard pill to swallow. And you resist as much as possible to, to, to still provide for your families. And I, and I get that. I understand you know, people that, that comply to a point because of, you know, they, the, the threat of losing their livelihood and ultimate, you know, you know, dedication to feeding their families. Like, I understand that. Um, but, you know, and we also understand that if everybody at once said no, it wouldn't have happened. But it's easy when you have isolated pockets of resistance to crush them with peer pressure, with with, with, with isolation, with, um, you know, just because you, you don't see like there was a bunch, there was a, in New Jersey, there was a guy that was arrested on, on the beach, you know, it wasn't a, a, wasn't a thousand people. It was like these isolated instances. It's easy for the government to control, to lock that down and go arrest a one individual here, two there, one here. But if there was thousands of people on the beach, there's no way they could have done anything. Um, so it was very surreal going into this, and I knew, I knew it was it was insidious and evil, 
um, and very powerful, this evil force. And you, you don't have those connections, right? And then as it went on, you see people standing up and you would reach out to that person. Mark Bashaw, when I found out uh, about what he was doing and he was getting court-martialed, I drove down there. I drove the, the, the couple hours down there took a little time off work just to support, you know, and, and you could feel that instant connection and uh, Commander Green was there and, and some of these other great individuals. And you start building that network, these, these God-fearing, freedom-loving patriots that, you know, in their own way, small or great, stand up against the tyranny. And you build these networks and they grow and they inspire. You know, have you seen the, the cartoon uh, where you got the master with the whip in the front of all these slaves, they're bowing. And then the next caption, one slave stands up. And then the last caption, all of them stand up and they, they, they overcome the master. Right. So it's, it's that concept, but that's, that's the, you know, the, the greatest part about the last three years plus is building these networks. You Scott, I mean, it uh, I probably would have never listened to your podcast or, or even knew about you because, you know, I met you through, doc p chambers and i would have never met him because you know it just goes on down the line um but it's you know like like doc says it's a god thing you know this there's you know there's things on earth that you can't explain except you know that that god exists and he's 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 here he's present and that this is an actual spiritual world you know they always talk about going down the rabbit hole well what's at the bottom it's a spiritual warfare right it's an age old evil, like, like your, your ending always says, but, um, you know, I, you know, let, as, as far as like the, uh, relation of what we've experienced as civilians in the past three years to the unconventional warfare, you can see the unconventional warfare come out. I'm not a fifth generation warfare expert, but you see all these different aspects, right? So they're, they're affecting the economy, the, uh, how many people lost their jobs? How many people lost their businesses? You know, how many people were isolated in their homes? So the economy, uh, the, you know, the, the trust in the government institutions has been destroyed, right? The military, our warfighting capability, our ability to provide uh, defense of this nation has been, has been whittled down, has been undermined, severely undermined. You look at the energy crisis, right? Gas prices going up another way to affect the economy, but put more pressure on the middle class and the in the and the lower class that don't make a lot of money, and push them to, um, you know, rely on the government to solve their problems, to fix their problems, you know, whatever that's to usher in a, a living wage or, uh, um, you know, the reliance on the government is what they want. Then they have more control. Same with the, the 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 crypto well, well the the central bank digital currency right that's another control mechanism we saw in Canada and I know you've talked about this where they can just shut your account off and now you can't go anywhere you can't buy food um, the oil the, the 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 national petroleum reserve has been sold off the lowest point since 1984 right so in a, if if we have a crisis you know. And that oil that was supposed to be there as kind of a cushion to help us is gone. You know, um, you know who who the KGB defector Yuri Beznamov? Oh yeah, very well played him on the show. So the four stages of subversion you're well aware of, right? 
So the demoralization, right? That goes back to the, the initial, the bottom of the rabbit hole is the spiritual warfare, right? We demoralize the people in this nation, you know, the, 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 the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll, the, the lack of respect for your family, lack of respect for society, the constitution, you break down, right? What was once virtuous. And it's, and it's like, you know, Benjamin Franklin said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom as nation, you know, as nations become corrupt and, and vicious, they have more need of masters. Right. And then the, after the demoralization, you've talked about this and the destabilization, the crisis, right? So all these, and that's what I was talking about, you know, all these artifices of, of war, if you want to call it war, which I think it is in a fifth gen sense, you know, the, the economy, the energy, the demoralization, the, um, the education. I think that's one of the biggest thing that nobody focuses a lot on. And I love Alex Newman's uh, insight on that. He's very smart about the education system. We need to just get rid of the Department of Education, Re just completely destroy the common core, right? You're, you know, in, in this history over the last couple decades of uh, blocking prayer in schools, you know, getting rid of God or at least Christianity out of the schools and then everything else goes, right? That's a, another artifice of war against us in our nation and that demoralization. Um, but it all comes together, right? So what's the crisis? What's what's coming next? You know, I mean, COVID maybe was just a, a prelude. Is it World War Three? Is it a collapse of the economy and mass chaos? What, are they trying to, are they trying to incite true God-fearing conservative patriots to pick up arms and then give them the justification to, to, to you know, incite martial law and come and take our guns away. I'm sure they would love that. You know, you know, if you look at J six, you know, that, that was a complete farce. Like they tried to squeeze as much juice as that as they could, but it, it, it was nothing there. They, they absolutely, I believe they absolutely wanted some carnage to ensue to give them the justification. And then of course they're, the the Hegelian dialectic, right? The 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 problem, the reaction, the solution, right? So that's number four in Yuri's, right? The normal normalization, where they come in with the the fix. This is how they're going to fix everything. But but you know, and I know you can see, and you start. It's called pattern recognition, right? You have eyes, you can see. You have ears, you can hear, and you can just see all this going on. And you put all these pieces together. And it's a very evil picture, you know, and, and, and God always wins. So there's, there's no doubt that it, it will be good, but it will be a lot of suffering and it will be hell on earth. I, I think it's going to get worse. I would agree. It's the point though, that with the anchor that we have in our faith and with the rising up of the people, because at the end of the day, obviously we are a country of we, the people, not a country that says the government will guide we the people. On this day, I'd like to do a prayer. If it's okay with you, that's how we always close. Always. Father God, I just want to thank you for Corey and all that he's given to this nation. And just a reminder too of what that legacy represents. The Green Beret, the Special Forces are truly one of the great creations of our time brought to us by, in the inception by John F. Kennedy and literally a legacy that has opened our eyes to what truly is to free the oppressed. 
We're grateful for these men who serve, all the men who serve and have paid the ultimate price. And in this day, we're reminded again as well of the challenges that lie ahead, the difficulties of the road that we have, but ultimately the love in you and trust in you will bring us through all things that we shall overcome. So Father, we just ask that you will continue to guide Corey and all that he does, raise him up and uh, continue to give his voice and those of his same origins, the strength to stand in such a time as this. We need that legacy to come to life, to ultimately perform its duties it has done all over the world, to now mobilize, to raise up this nation, to do the ultimate mission of all, the defense of this land which you gave us and which is blessed. Guide us and protect us, and we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brother, it is an interesting time. It's going to take all of the resources of the veteran class and the resources of the hearts of the warriors that God is raising up to come together to overthrow this evil. But I do believe we will do it, and I believe we will do it successfully. It's just, just going, to, it's going to be the grit of, of grit, so to speak. I agree, 100%. Well, I hope you have a very blessed day. God bless you on this Memorial Day, man. This is, and thank you for coming on. God bless you as well. May God bless, guide, and protect you, sir. Thank you, sir. Have a blessed day. Thank you. Well, Patriots, that was Sergeant First Class retired Corey Terry, Special Forces 18 Delta. He's a medic, obviously served 15 years in Special Forces. Great guy. Um, and it's just one of these things when you meet people like this, the way we've met, we've just, we just haven't known each other that long, but it's just like a brotherhood and you connect and it's great people, great heart. And that's really what this is all about is bringing the great hearts of the nation together right now, and especially on this day to honor what it means to be a patriot, what it means to give service to a nation and to causes greater than ourselves. And to respect the fact that of what the service is given, not get into the details of the politics because they're always dirty, but to understand that the heart of the person, that willingness to give yourself to a higher cause is what built this nation. And there's many people out there still like that. Fact is now we have to awaken that, we have to stand into it, we have to bring it together. And this is the critical hour to do that. Well, Patriots, I hope you had a very blessed and reflective Memorial Day. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We are at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots, I will see you tonight for Fishers of Men. Until then or until the next time, God bless and out for now. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion 
that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs and hardships, as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer, to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. This country was conquered by those who move forward, and so will space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. thousands of years to show its face. It has only one intent, to destroy God's light and to enslave. It has no scruples. It has no rules but one, to win at any cost. But we will never bow, for we are the remnant that will hold the line. This is war. We fight. We push, we climb, we never give in, we become the nightmare that evil didn't know could exist. We pray, we stand, we live by the words, in God we trust, we fear nothing, we are the light that can never be extinguished. We are patriots. We are the digital army that will help deliver God's wrath. 